I don't know how familiar you all are with mythology, Homer's Odyssey, but there's a story in the Odyssey about the main character, right, Odysseus, and he encounters some issues with the sirens. Anybody familiar with the sirens? Yeah. Don said he married one, so I'm not going to go there. But um, Odysseus had a, had a problem because he had to pass the island that the sirens were on. Well, the sirens were disguised as beautiful women. And they sang a beautiful song, and it lured people in. And when the men, the sailors, would be drawn to the island, the sirens were actually cannibalistic monsters who would eat the sailors. So congratulations. <laughs> You've made it 50 years without our eating you. So. Anywho, um, so Circe, who was a goddess, gave uh, Odysseus some advice, knowing that he would have to pass the island. Let me, I don't think, yeah. Let me read what Circe said to Odysseus. Next, where the sirens dwell, you plow the seas. Their song is death and make destruction, please. Unbless the man whom music wins to stay nigh the cursed shore and listen to the lay. No more that wretch shall view the joys of life his blooming offspring or his beauteous wife. In verdant meads they sport, and wide around lie human bones that whiten all the ground. The ground polluted floats with human gore, and human carnage taints the dreadful shore. Fly swift the dangerous coast, lest every ear be stopped against the song, tis death to hear. Firm to the mast with chains thyself be bound, nor trust thy virtue to the enchanting sound. If mad with transport freedom thou demand, be every fetter strained and added band to band. So what Circe is saying is, make provision so that you don't hear the song, or if you do hear the song, that you can't get loose and go to the island. So what Odysseus does, he had his men fill their ears with beeswax. Okay? Mine's kind of like that anyway. But. And he had them tie him to the mast of the ship. And he said, do not untie me until after we have passed by the island, no matter what I say to you. Okay? And they did make it past the island. We'll get back to that later. Think about that. Put a pin in it. We'll come back to it. Now, I want to talk to parents and small children right now about what we're going to talk about today. Most of, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to be about things that hopefully you small children don't understand right now. Okay? Hopefully. And that's a good thing. Now listen to me. Young kids, please listen to me. There will come a time in your life when what we're talking about today will be a very real and very hard struggle for you. But for now, there's some things you shouldn't understand. Okay? Trust your parents to tell you when it's time to understand these things. You ever heard of Corey Ten Boom? Anybody ever heard of Corey Ten Boom? She told her story about being harboring Jews during the Holocaust and then being put in a concentration camp. She tells this story about an issue she had when she was young. She had heard about what she called sex sin at school. And she was on a train with her dad... And she asked this question. I'll just listen. I'll just let her tell it. So seated next to my father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex sin? This is when she's a little girl. He turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question, but to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case, his suitcase, off the floor and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train for me, Corey? He said. I stood up and tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. And I said, it's too heavy. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Listen to me, kids. This is what he said. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. 
For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. Is that not beautiful? Listen to me, younger folks, little folks. Trust your folks to carry this for you right now. And when the time comes to carry these suitcases, these heavy burdens, and they are heavy, trust your parents to teach you how to best carry them. Now, parents, I would encourage you to engage your children in these issues. Do not, Christian parents, do not let the culture direct your children's thinking on these issues. Engage the issue when you should and do not run from it. Find the right balance between being casual and being avoidant on this topic. Let me me say that again. Find the right balance between being casual and being avoidant on this topic. Don't veer to either side and be sure to call sin, sin. John MacArthur tells this story to make this point clear. He says, Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman told of a distinguished minister from Australia who preached very strongly one day on the subject of sin. And after the service, one of the church officers came to counsel with him in his study. And he said, Dr. Howard, we don't want you to talk as openly as you do about man's corruption. Because if our boys and girls hear you discussing the subject, they'll more easily become sinners. Call it a mistake or something, if you will, but don't speak so plainly about sin. The minister took down a small bottle from the cabinet and showed it to the visitor and said, Do you see that label? The man said, Yes. It's strychnine. And underneath that in bold red letters is the word poison. Do you know, man, what you are asking me to do, he said? You're suggesting that I change the label. Suppose I do and paste over it the words essence of peppermint. Do you see what might happen? Someone would use it not knowing the danger involved and would die. And so it is too with the matter of sin. The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. And so we cannot mitigate the danger of sin. We must speak of the issue. End of quote. So parents, engage this issue at the right time and call sin, sin. Jesus does exactly that in our passage today. And so should we. And so we will. So let's look at our passage. We've got four big verses today, but man, they're big verses. So if you would stand to receive the written and audible words of God. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. God, who is sufficient for these matters? Jesus was and Jesus is. So we turn to Him and we ask Your Holy Spirit to teach us, instruct us, convict us, and reconstruct us into the image of Jesus as we deal with these weighty issues. Help us, God. Help your people. And if there be those here today who do not know you, Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin and show them their need for a Savior and show them Jesus as that Savior clearly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's hard to be discreet when the Master is so plain. I will do my best and trust what he can do more than what I can do. So we're going to start with verse 27, obviously. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now we need to revisit the passage from two weeks ago since we had our Christmas message last week. And the, the passage two weeks ago is where Jesus dealt with murder and anger. Okay? So he was saying, if you'll remember, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you that anybody that's angry with their brother is in danger. Whoever says this, whoever says that is in danger of hell. And he goes on and on. And and what he does, he dealt with the sixth commandment of you shall not murder. And we said that Jesus was refuting not the law of God. He said he came to fulfill the law. 
and that not a jot or a tittle would pass away until he fulfilled it. But what he was refuting were the rabbinic traditions that made up what the Jews of Jesus' day were being taught as the necessary elements for salvation and holy living. He wasn't addressing or contradicting the law of God, but rather he was communicating the very heart of the law instead of the basic letter of the law. While the rabbis would say that if you didn't kill anyone, you were all right, Jesus was saying that if you're angry with your brother or accuse them or call them names, you were in danger of being judged by God, not just the local magistrate. And he was forceful, Jesus was, in saying that your anger was your issue to deal with. Not murder, because anger is the root issue. And he said, who's got to deal with your anger? You've got to deal with your anger. Not somebody else. You were to leave your offering at the altar and go make things right with your brother who had something against you. You were to come to terms with your accuser on the way to court. And Jesus was clear in communicating that the spirit of the law was much broader than just not killing someone. Anger is a heart issue and it's your job to guard your heart from the destructive influence of anger. So now we bring that same mindset into today's passage. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. So note the familiar beginning again. You have heard that it was said. He'll come back on that in the next verse and say, But I say to you. So again, he's exerting his authority and making what he is saying over and above what has been said by the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers previously. So again, he's not addressing, he's not just addressing the commandment of God, which would be the seventh commandment, You shall not commit adultery. He's not only addressing that, he's addressing that, but he's not just addressing the outside issue. He's making sure that everybody understands that what they've heard about this in the past from the rabbis, teachers, and scribes was woefully insufficient. He will let them know what the full breadth of this commandment is. And guess what? It's much more than just not committing adultery. But let's address adultery while we're here. How would you define adultery? Merriam-Webster, remember that's where we go. Merriam-Webster defines adultery as, quote, "...voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and someone other than that person's current spouse or partner." In the Bible, that's an accurate definition. And the Bible would also add worshiping idols as a form of adultery, spiritual adultery. Many times in the Old Testament, God says that Israel played the whore with idols. But here in our passage today, adultery, as Jesus is using it, refers to intercourse between a married man or woman with someone who is not their legal spouse. And unfortunately, we live in a day and time where we have to define spouse too. Biblically, God created one man and one woman and joined them together as man and wife. The biblical marriage ethic is based on a lifetime commitment between one man and one woman. And we'll talk more about that next week when we talk about marriage. But we need to be clear in our time today and make sure that we're on the same page as the Bible. Not the culture. Not the prevailing tide of what you're hearing and seeing out there. Because they're wrong. And they're condoning, celebrating sin. So, Jesus says that His hearers have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not have intercourse with someone who is not your spouse. So back to where we were before we started defining adultery. Jesus is saying, You have heard that it was said you shouldn't or you shall not commit adultery. And the basic meaning of that is that you should not have sex with someone who is not your spouse. And the rabbis would teach that if you don't have sex with anyone besides your spouse then you're fine. But are we really? Jesus says plainly, clearly, and emphatically, no. We're not fine. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, note the clear authority being expressed here. There's no reference to a higher authority or any kind of tradition or any other rabbi. Jesus says, but I say to you, as the author of the original law. We talked about that two weeks ago too. 
He imposes His authority over and above the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees and makes it clear that what He says is right. What He says is what God says. He speaks as God. No wonder they killed Him. He challenged the very core of who these scribes and Pharisees were and what they did as teachers of the law. How challenged would I be if the Son of God stood up here and said, you've heard Jason say this, but I say to you this. I would either be broken and contrite or I would be really mad at him. And they got really mad at him. They weren't broken and contrite. He flatly said, they're wrong. They were pursuing the easiest out that they could find to the fathomless depths of God's teachings. They had put the cookies on the lowest shelf, so to speak, to make it easier for them to get what they wanted in the easiest possible way. They wanted salvation. They wanted righteousness. So they boiled it down to the easiest way that they could boil it down. Just don't sleep with another person's spouse. You'll be okay. And they felt fine with who they were and what they were doing as long as they didn't sleep with someone who they weren't married to. But Jesus says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's something else altogether now, isn't it? Actually, it's not. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now listen to what he's saying. He started by bringing up adultery. After zeroing in on the heart of the murder commandment, you wonder what people were thinking when he brought up adultery. So he brings up this murder thing, and he says, you shall not murder. And they're like, okay, I'm, that's good, because I've never killed anybody. And then he says, basically, if you're angry, you've committed murder. And they're like, oh, shoot. Never thought about that. So now he says, you shall not commit adultery. And they're probably like, well, I've never done that, but he's probably going to tell me that I have. And then he does, Okay. They probably double-clutched and was like, oh, what's he going to say? And he says that if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Now, let me, let me clarify something. Who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. So he's talking to men about lusting after women. Does that mean that it's not pertinent to women? Absolutely not. He's talking to men, so he's talking to men about women. And he's talking to good religious men. So, ladies, I don't want you to tune out. This is just as pertinent for you as it is for the men. Don't get lost in the verbiage of man and woman. This is just as pertinent for you as it is for men. Okay? So, he says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So you see the heart connection again. Anger was to be kept out of your heart when we looked at murder. Now, lust is to be kept out of your heart when we talk about adultery. And what is the avenue to the heart here? This is so big. Looking. Your eyes are in direct connection with your heart. Notice that he does not mention sexual organs here. But instead, Jesus brings up the eyes and the heart in regards to adultery. So Jesus has taken us out of the bedroom and into the street. Out of a one-time event and into every waking moment of our lives. So what's the deal with your eyes? Looking is like unto adultery. But not just looking, but looking with lustful intent. Looking with lustful intent. Well, let's explain that so that we're all clear here. I think we can easily know and agree what intent is. Intent is being intentional. It means doing something purposefully for a specific purpose. If you are intent on something, you are resolved and determined to do it. And what is the intent here in this looking? It's lustful intent. And lust is a tricky term. We can lust for a lot of things. Power, money, pizza, donuts. Always comes back to pizza and donuts, right? We can lust for a promotion. We can lust for something that we want, an item, a thing. But lust is an intense desire, it's a powerful longing. And the clear meaning in our passage today, though, is about sex. It's sexual lust, it's an intense sexual desire and longing. And so Jesus says that if you look upon someone who is not your spouse with the intention of desiring them sexually, you have already committed adultery with them in your heart. 
If you intend to longingly look at someone beside your spouse with a sexually bent purpose, your heart has been contaminated with adulterous sin. So think about that decision to gaze at that person walking by you. Think about that decision to click that mouse on an image or a link that will take you to an image or video. Think of watching that movie with that actor or actress so you can just feast your eyes on them. That is lustful intent. And if you can't see that we are flooded with opportunities to do this in our culture, you are either innocently oblivious, praise God for that, or you're just plain stupid. So you haven't been intimate with anyone but your spouse? Fantastic. That's great. That that is really good. But your heart can be full of adulterous idolatry all the while. Jesus is zeroing in on the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is the heart. The secret place that no one but you and God know. What if a light was shown right now into your heart regarding sexual lust? What if it was just put up there on the screen? Jason has thought about this and this, and Jason has looked at this person. I'd probably run out that door. And I would be woefully embarrassed. I'd say you would be too. That secret place that nobody but you and God know. That inside place that no one else can see. They can see your outward acts or your lack of acts. But they can't see what you're thinking. They can't see what you're feeling. They can't see what your intention is. And that's the very essence of the commandment to not commit adultery. The act of adultery is the outermost rim of the circle that contains a vast ocean of intent and inner life. God had commanded the Israelites to not commit adultery. That's true. But He also meant for them to keep their hearts right with Him, keep their hearts right with themselves, keep their hearts right with their neighbors and even their enemies. And here Jesus says this is just as true sexually as it was with anger. The commandment was not intended to only direct the outer man. Its whole purpose was to encompass the outer and the inner man. And it affects us all in major ways, doesn't it? It affects our interactions with others. It affects our most private thoughts, our most private moments. And that's what it's supposed to do. The law of God is supposed to affect every area of your life and that's exactly what Jesus is saying and doing here. And it's supposed to cause major differences, major changes in our lives. How much? Look at this next verse. Get ready. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Oh, shoot. (laughs) You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Yeah, that's... yeah. If you're wondering if Jesus could be serious about this whole eye-heart adultery thing, He makes it clear that He is serious. He moves from the inner motives and longings to what to do about these inner longings and motives if they're out of line. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Throw it away. Your eye. Throw your eye away. After you tear it out. After you tear your eye out, throw it away. (laughs) Your eye. Throw it away. Is he serious? Well, he sure sounds serious. Now the question is, does Jesus mean what he's saying? Like really, for real. Tear, Tear it out, throw your eye in the trash can. I might flush mine. I don't know. (laughs) And the answer is yes. He does mean what he's saying, but it's a tricky yes. A couple of preliminary things to answer this tricky yes. One of the main rules for Bible interpretation is that you have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. So if a statement like this comes up that's odd, challenging, scary... You have to wonder, is it literal and binding? 
And you have to ask, is it consistent with, with what the rest of the Bible says? So let me ask you this. Is there anywhere else in the Bible where there's a command to harm yourself in an effort to keep from sinning? You'd be hard-pressed to find one. You might be able to interpret a few things, maybe. Because that's what Jesus' statement could implicate. And the answer is, to that question, do you see that anywhere else in Scripture? The answer is no. Even in the law, it doesn't say harm yourself. It might say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but that's in regards to somebody losing an eye or a tooth. Whoever plucked out the eye or broke the tooth off gets their eye plucked out and their tooth broken off. Conversely, Paul makes it clear in Colossians 2 that harsh treatment of the body just doesn't work. Look at this, Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Watch this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So treating your body harshly has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You're like, oh, I see. So this this is Scripture that contradicts Scripture. Never. Never does it happen. Never will it happen. Try. It's not going to happen. Okay? So Paul says, severity to the body has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then Jesus says, pluck your eye out. Throw it away. So then what's going on? If he's not saying to harm yourself... Because that's what it sounds like. What is he saying? And why would I say that he does mean what he's saying if he doesn't mean to actually tear your eye out? Well, he could just be using hyperbole, which is overblown thoughts to convey dramatic concepts, maybe. Or maybe Jesus is talking about something besides your physical eye. We've already said that your eyes and your heart are connected, right? Herb Hodges used to say that we become like what we look at lovingly, longingly, and lastingly. So if you look at something and you want it, you're going to become like that thing. What have you set your eyes on? Because I think that resonates with what Jesus is saying here. What do you desire? What do you want? What dominates your thoughts and what have you set your affections on? Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize the passage, but I do think Jesus would have us to evaluate what we look at more than anything else. And I think that He would have us to radically deal with what we have set our affections on. He would have us to tear our eye out for that thing or those things that take up so much of our mental, emotional, and chronological energy. If what we're focused on, especially if it is lustful intent, is sinful, you should pluck your eye out for that thing. Blind yourself to it. And do not give yourself an opportunity to look at it again. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? Tear it out and throw it away. Now Jesus does say that it's better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. It would make sense that this is just keeping in line with the metaphor. And I would be remiss to address the fact, if I, I would be remiss to fail to address the fact, that if you tore your eye out, your right eye out, guess what? You got a left eye. And if you tore it out, guess what? You're still going to struggle with lust. There's too many thoughts and memories and pictures and videos and stuff in your head that you're going to recollect. So plucking your eyes out is not going to help you. It's only going to hurt you. So again, I don't think that's the advice Jesus would give His disciples and how to deal with lustful thoughts. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Jesus is ridiculing the Pharisees' external view of righteousness here. That makes sense as well. It's like He's saying, just make it harder for your body to sin. Sure, that'll work. And again, I'll spend more time here, but Jesus isn't done yet. Let's look at our last verse for the day. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. There's another passage where Jesus will actually say the same thing about your foot. If your right foot makes you stumble, cut it off too. So Jesus moves from the heart's desire, what we're looking at, and then He goes to addressing the action, what our hand is doing. 
So if your eye offends you, pluck it out, throw it away. If your hand is sinning, cut it off, throw it away. Your eye sees something, your hand reaches out to take it or use it. And if what you are doing causes you to sin, cut your hand off and throw it away. Now, let's remember what we saw in the eye section. Sorry, couldn't help it. Had to do that. (laughs) And remember that our heart and our affections were what were being addressed. So what's going on here with the hand talk? It seems to point to our habits, which are based on our affections. What are you doing habitually? What actions are your norm? Are your repeated actions leading you to sin? If so, do something drastic to make sure those habits, those things you're doing are changed so that you don't keep doing what you used to do which led you into sin habitually, consistently, especially sexual sin. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, believer. Listen to me, Christian. You have to drastically alter your habits. You have to drastically alter your actions to make sure you are not in sinful cycles with your physical body. And it doesn't matter how ingrained or how socially acceptable your habit is if it's leading you to sexually sinful actions. Drastically, purposefully, finally deal with it. Throw it away. Trash it so that it doesn't lead you to hell. And listen to me. You will not casually drift toward change. You will not wake up one day and say, Oh, okay, I'm doing stuff different now. It takes determined effort. Matt Chandler would call it grace-driven effort to break your addictions and your desires and your doings. And listen to me. I want you to hear me say this clearly. If your affections and your actions are not changed and you consistently want and do things that are sinful, it's a pretty good indicator that you're not righteous either in your standing before God or in your living before men. And what I mean by that is if you don't want to change, if you don't see anything wrong with it, you're probably not saved. And while there's a lot more here that we could look into as far as what this passage means, we could probably spend another week if we wanted to. I think application is of utmost importance to us here. So we'll spend the rest of our time, about half of it, looking at how to apply this passage in our everyday lives because it affects every area of our lives, especially in our culture today. So... I've got three D's. Your application this morning is in 3D. You know, we need those red and blue glasses. So so everybody would look red and blue. So the three D's of application are dote. I'll explain that, I promise. Do and desire. Dote, do, not don't. That sounds very applicable. Don't, 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 don't do that. No, that's not what I'm saying. Don't, D-O-T-E. Don't, do, and desire are 3D application points. First is don't. Now let me define don't. I really struggled with this application point in particular. Hence the word don't, okay? You're like, what's don't mean? It means to be lavish or excessive in one's attention, fondness, or affection. So have you ever heard somebody say they doted over somebody? Oh, they just dote over that youngest child. Or, oh, they just dote over their husband or their wife. Or they just dote over... It means that they have lavish or excessive attention, fondness or affection towards something or someone. They just dote over it. So our first application point is dote. And it refers to our eyes, which refers to our desires. Okay? It all starts with a look. Doesn't it? Mm, look at that. Mm. And all of a sudden this cycle of thinking kicks into action, which triggers our hearts, which triggers our affections. It all started with a look, what you're doting over. Whoa, look at that. And all of a sudden your attention, your affection goes to somewhere it should not go, especially sexually. The Bible makes it clear how important it is that what we take into ourselves through our eye gate is of utmost importance. 
What are you looking at in your everyday life, Christian? Jesus will say when we get into the 6th chapter of Matthew in verses 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So your eyes are where either light or darkness are coming into your person, into your mind, into your heart, into your whole body. Your eye will either allow darkness or light into your life. So what are you looking at? David, who had some issues with looking, says this in Psalm 101.3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. David looked at Bathsheba bathing on top of her house. And what did that lead him to do? Commit adultery and murder. And it all started with what? A look. Oh, what's going on over there? Mm-hmm. Go get her for me. I want her. That's not your wife, sir. Go get her for me. I want her. David was a man after God's own heart. David was the man that God had said to anoint king over Israel before Saul was ever gone. God spoke highly of David. And David's greatest fall came because he wasn't looking at the right thing. He was looking at the wrong thing. Guys, gals, what are you looking at? It is of utmost importance. How much time do you spend during the day like this? With this screen in front of your face with your neck cocked down. What are you looking at? I'm afraid to ask. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Things that lead me to lust are worthless and they're destructive. Job said this in Job 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job made specific intentions in his heart before temptations came. He made a covenant. A solemn binding agreement with his eyes to not look lustfully upon a virgin, one who was not his wife. That's a good start here as far as application goes. Determine within yourself that you won't look at what you shouldn't look at. Now that's not going to fix everything. We still have two other application points. But it's a good start. I don't always want what I should want, but I always want to want what I should want. I want my intention to be right. And that's what Jesus was dealing with. If you look with lustful intention, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So make your intention to not look. It's a good start. And in an age of internet and the potential that is brought there, determine beforehand that you will have someone who has free and open access to your browsing history, on your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever you may have. These are preventative steps. This is beeswax in the ears. This is lash me to the mast to help deter what you may look at. So then back to what we asked before. What should you be looking at? We know what we shouldn't be looking at. That's pretty easy. What should you be looking at? Well, you know what's coming, right? You should be looking at the Bible. You're like, all the time? Stay with me. Psalm 119, 9-11, classic passage. How can a young man keep his way pure? And I would say, how could a young woman keep her way pure as well? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Now watch this, heart and then what? I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
God gave us a book so that we could look at it. God gave us a book so that we could look at it and see Him. His Word should be before our eyes, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, so that we can know from the book, from the author, what is good and right and holy and pure. And I know we can't always have a Bible in front of our faces, even though in our day and time, wow, what access we have. The scrolls aren't kept in a hidden place in a tabernacle somewhere. This device, this device, my phone, paper Bibles, you name it. We have access to the Bible in ways we never have before. So we could definitely look at it more than we're looking at it, right? I read an article and I posted it on Facebook from Desiring God that quoted Don Whitney. And he said this, If most people, oh my word, if most people would exchange their TV time for Scripture reading, they'd finish reading the entire Bible in four weeks or less. And if that sounds unworkable, consider this, he says, In no more than 15 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in less than a year's time. End of quote. How much time do you spend looking at a TV? What if you exchange that time for the Bible? Oh, that's kind of boring. That's a different issue. We'll talk about that at the end. Four weeks or less, 15 minutes a day. I don't have time. Bull. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to us. If you don't believe that you've got 15 minutes a day to purposefully read your Bible, you're lying. And I'm lying. Apple's got the stuff on their device now that tells you your screen time for the week. It gives you a report to tell you how much screen time you've spent. Yeah, tell me you don't have time to read the Bible. I'm going to leave that alone. Look at the Bible. Turn your eyes purposefully from explicit things. And be wary of the saturation level that our, cultural, that our culture has with sexual content. You're not commanded to run and hide. You're not commanded to become a monk. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So go out there and keep your eyes pure in the midst of the culture. Change what you look at. But don't stop there. That was doting. Dote. Now we go to do. This is about our hands. We went from our eyes to our hands. Here's where the rubber meets the road. What we look at determines what we actually do. If we are looking lustfully, we will act lustfully. So how do we correct what we're doing? Well, hopefully by changing what we're looking at, we change a lot. But we have to make sure we are establishing habits and lifestyles that are free from sexually sinful acts. How free is free? Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's no wiggle room here. There's no excuses or reasonings for your culture being saturated with sex that makes this passage go, oh, okay, well then that doesn't apply to me in this situation. There's no wiggle room. Not... Even a hint of sexual immorality is to be named among you. Not even a hint. And just so you know, and this is, this is wildly important, the word for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. Easy to see where, where we go with that, right? But here's the deal. It's a junk drawer term. It means anything. Listen to me. It means anything outside the bounds of God-ordained, God-blessed sexual activity within a marriage between one man and one woman. Anything. And that drawer is full. Now hear me clearly. Hear me clearly. 
any sexual thought, any sexual action, any sexual implication outside of biblical marriage is a sin. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that not even a hint of it is to even be named among you. So you're saying, well, I'm not married. Right. So anything outside the bounds of biblical marriage that has to do with sex is sin for you. How close can I get? Don't do that. How far away can I get? Yes. You play with it, you will get burned. Not even a hint. So how does that change what you do? What movies you watch, what websites you visit, what thoughts you think, what words you use, what jokes you tell, and on and on and on. I'm telling you guys, this affects everything. Everything in your life. It affects what aisles you walk down in the store or how you walk down those aisles. It affects who your friends are on social media. It affects whether you should even have a social media account. This calls for new habits, new patterns, biblical thinking, biblical instruction, and a life shaped by those things. Tear out that eye. Cut off that hand. For your sake, for your family's sake, for your future spouse's sake, for the sake of the people of this church, for the sake of the glory of God, listen to me, do something differently. Do everything differently. On purpose. Drastically. You're like, well, okay. So what do I do? There's a lot of things I could quote here. I'm going to give you two verses that should guide every decision you make on whether you should do, say, think, feel, anything. And I do mean feel. You can govern your emotions. You're supposed to govern your emotions. Two verses. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. These two verses boil everything you do down to this. If you can't do it in the name of Jesus, if you can't do it to the glory of God, don't do it! Don't say it, don't think it, don't feel it, don't act on it. If it can't be done in Jesus' name, if it can't be done to the glory of God, don't do it. Tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. Maybe you need a flip phone. What will people think? They'll think I'm real. We think that way. And that's more important than what he's saying here. And it's the church. I'm not throwing rocks at them. They're sinners. That's what they do. Tear it out. Cut it off. Throw it away. If it isn't to the glory of God and in the name of Jesus. And I promise you things will be different then. What you do will be different then. But that's not the ultimate instruction here. Doting, doing. Our final point of application is desire. This is about our longing. This is about what we love, what we like. And this is the ultimate answer. You need something sweeter than the siren song. These monsters who disguise themselves, oddly enough, as beautiful women, lived on an island. As you pass the island, they sing beautiful songs that lure you in, promising pleasure. Then you land on the island and they eat you alive. Odysseus had a pretty good plan and it worked. But I promise you that as he went by that island, he begged them to untie him. He did. 
in the story. Please untie me. I want to go over there. Preventative measures are good. They're not wrong. They're good, but they're not enough. There's another story about the sirens in the story of Jason and the Argonauts. A hero named Jason. I like him. He's a good guy. He's got a different strategy for overcoming the temptation of the sirens. Jason had someone play the liar, L-Y-R-E, while they passed the island, and listen to me, and the liar music was more captivating than the song of the sirens, so that the spell of the sirens was broken and the sailors weren't affected by them or their music. Listen to me. Please listen to me. If you have heard nothing else today, listen to me. Jason found something that was more appealing, more enjoyable than the song of the sirens. He found something that he liked better. Now I'll say it again. Odysseus was right. But he didn't deal with the core temptation. Jason dealt with the core temptation. Odysseus was told, plow the seas, stop your ears, tie yourself. Or have somebody else tie you to the mast. But Jason had a better strategy. He found a sweeter song that was more pleasurable than the siren song. And he did not want what they offered as much as he wanted what he had. You want to deal with sexual temptation? Drink water from your own well. And if you think the Bible doesn't talk about this, you need to read your Bible. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. This is graphic, y'all. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom? of an adulteress. Listen to me. I know I keep saying that. God gave sex as a gift to be fully enjoyed within the marriage relationship. Read the Song of Solomon and try not to blush. Sex is a wonderful, beautiful, God-given gift in the right context. So enjoy it in the right context. Well then, most of you are sitting here saying, but I'm not married. And I say, okay. That means that that gift is not for you right now. Maybe ever. It is possible that you never marry. Listen to me. It's possible that you never have sex in your life. You don't need it like oxygen. It's not food. You're not going to die if you never have sex. And I know the culture would scream, You're not married? You're saying, well, how am I supposed to enjoy this gift? You're not supposed to enjoy this gift. That's not rocket science. That's simple math. Zero plus zero equals zero. If you're not married, sex is not for you right now. Okay? Sexual intent, sexual thoughts. Sexual longings. You say, well, I've got them. You do. What are you supposed to do with them? Put them away by finding a greater affection. You say, well, hmm, that's kind of tricky. Is it? If God has not given you the gift of sex within a marital relationship, it means that He has chosen to bless you and give you gifts that married people can't have even. We'll talk about that more when we talk about the gift of singleness in Matthew 19. It's in the Bible. But for now, let's suffice it to say that the culture is lying to you if you think you need sex or that sex is okay out of marriage or that sexual thoughts or sexual images are okay outside of marriage. They are not. In marriage, it is a wonderful gift, so enjoy it if you can. And as married people, let that be a major weapon in your battle against lust. But don't stop there if you're married and don't despair if you're not. Listen to me. Because there is another source of joy and pleasure that is available to us all. Be pleased with God. Enjoy God. 
I talked to a person at the therapy place the other day. And they had just come out of sexual sin in their marriage. And I said, how do you think God views you at this moment? Well, I'm sure He's disappointed in me. And I ask him this question. Have you ever enjoyed God? And they looked at me quizzically. And I said, I don't think I've ever heard that in my life. I said, okay, let me ask you this question. Do you think God enjoys you? Well, I said, I think He's disappointed in me. Do you think He enjoys you? Probably not right now. Like, you can't enjoy God because you don't know that He enjoys you. In our efforts to combat lustful thoughts, sexual temptation, what if there was a sweeter song? What if there was a greater affection that appealed to our hearts and made everything else pale in comparison? The best strategy that I can offer you today is to enjoy God. And I promise you, if you rightfully and fully enjoy God, sexual sin will look sinful. Enjoy God. The problem with anger and murder is that you're not trusting God to be just. You're not trusting God with vengeance. The problem with lust and adultery is that you're not trusting God to be pleasurable. I just said if you'd read your Bible for 15 minutes a day and you're going... It's hard. I'm saying there's a better way. I'm saying God wants you to enjoy Him. Listen to this. You've heard this before. But listen to this. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know why we sin sexually? Because we like it. We like it. It feels good. What if there was something that felt better? What if there was something you could enjoy more? God says, I'll be your delight. I'll be the desire of your heart and I will give you all of me. All of me! And I promise you this. He promises you this you'll enjoy Him more than you ever enjoyed anything or anyone else the rest of your life. We don't believe that. You're sitting here right now going, yeah, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. It's the expulsive power of a greater affection is what Jonathan Edwards said. I can say no to sin because there's something that I want more. There's something that I love more. There's something that I like more. And it's God Himself. I've talked to too many people, too many people who are addicted to pornography. And when I tell them, you need to love Jesus more, they say, that's not going to work. And I look them in the face and I say, yes, it will. You need to love Jesus more than your sin. You need to love Jesus more than your right eye, your right hand. And you need to enjoy, pardon my lackadaisical language, you need to enjoy the heck out of God. Let me sing this morning. You have spoken a what? A better word. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I stand. I would change that and say, here in the pleasure of Christ, I stand. Jesus is better than sex. I promise. So delight yourself in Him and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And once we find our pleasure in Him, then, 
Then we can kill the deeds of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Then we can pluck out our eye and cut off our hand. And how do we do that? Here's the final point as we talk about doting, doing, and our ultimate desires. How do we kill sin? We kill sin by the Spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Go ahead and tie yourself to the mask. Go ahead and put the beeswax in your ear. That's all right. But it's not going to ultimately deal with your heart. Set your affections upon the person of God. Enjoy Him. And then you can start to just tear stuff off. Get rid of stuff. Throw stuff away. Because it doesn't appeal to you like it does anymore. Because the very Spirit of God is empowering you to be, think, do, look, feel differently. And so by the power of the Spirit, the very Spirit of God, the same Spirit that spoke creation into existence, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, gives you the ability to kill the deeds of the body. You will not do it by yourself. You cannot bite your lip enough, shut your eyes enough. You cannot do it. But by the power of the Spirit, you will do it. Through the Spirit, you will kill the deeds of the body. And it's a better word. Listen to what I'm saying as I finish. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When? Now. Now. I don't want you feeling guilty. That is not the desire of this message, of this speaker. I don't want you feeling guilty. That's counterproductive. I want you to feel hope. I want you to rejoice in freedom. I want you to delight yourself in the Lord. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's what I want you to see this morning. Listen, I'm a wicked man sometimes. I want wicked things sometimes. I do wicked things sometimes. I think wicked thoughts. Lustful, sinful thoughts. I do that. And by the power of the Spirit of God, I can kill that. And Jesus is better than those things that I want. He's better. So delight yourself in Him and kill the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And know that He has spoken over you a better word. The covenant that He has kept for us both. The acceptance and peace with God that only comes through who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. And this will be a lifelong struggle. I've talked to too many older people who have said something along the lines of, Well, I'm not dead yet. Or, no, it really hasn't changed much. Man or woman, you're going to deal with this the rest of your life. Deal victoriously with it as you delight yourself in the Lord and kill the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. Careful what you dote over. Careful what you do. And be especially careful what you truly desire. Let's pray. God, I thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. And I thank you that you have spoken a better word and provided a better way than plucking our eye out and cutting our hand off. I thank you for the Bible, God, which teaches us what true abundant life is really all about. I thank you for your spirit who gives us your very power to overcome these temptations that for now seem so strong and one day, God, will just vanish away. Help us this morning, God, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to look full into His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and of His grace. May it be so in our lives, God. Again, God, if there are those here who do not know the salvation, who do not know this wonderful, beautiful, powerful, glorious Jesus, Holy Spirit, 
speak life and bring us all to proper repentance for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay with us if you can.